0: Once again, we want to welcome you to Moving Forward with Young Voices. Very happy to have you aboard today, and we're happy to welcome uh, Rachel Johnson. She is here as a Young Voices contributor. She also uh, works at a Washington, D.C. think tank where she focuses on issues related to healthcare. Rachel, great to have you on the show.
1: Thank you. Great to be here. Appreciate you having me.
0: Do you want to take just a second, tell us a little bit about uh, who you are and what you do, and then we can then we can dive into your wonderful uh, article.
1: Absolutely, yeah. So I work at a Washington D.C. based think tank, like you said, um, where I work in government affairs, and a lot of that work involves areas of health policy. So I'm excited to you know write about areas related to health policy with young voices. Excited to be here.
0: All right. So I'm looking at this article from FreeThePeople.org. And your article is the U.S. should follow Glasgow's lead and remove barriers to overdose prevention centers. Now, I have to admit, I really hadn't heard much about overdose prevention centers until just a few weeks ago. For people hearing about it for the first time, what exactly is that?
1: Yeah, I think a lot of people might have heard the term safe injection site which is commonly used to describe overdose prevention centers, people have kind of moved away from that because overdose prevention center is more accurate to um, the purpose of these uh, institutions and organizations. Um, The purpose is really to help, you know, prevent people from dying, prevent these overdoses from happening. And while they do allow individuals to come and safely inject, the focus is not on drug use it's on preventing people from dying so i think that we're going to see this approach take on more as the overdose crisis unfortunately becomes worse and worse i think one of the reasons why we're seeing glasgow and scotland take up this approach is that their overdose rate is about three times higher than the rest of the united kingdom so it's the first ever in the uk and it's in an area where of course there are higher overdose rates so I think that as people are seeing more and more overdoses in their communities, they're going to want to turn to an approach that they might not have typically encouraged to, you know, ensure that people are not overdosing as frequently.
0: So I, I take it that was a that was a pretty major problem in Scotland or in, in Glasgow. Um, yeah. Help help me put this into perspective. Um, I, I know that uh, as long as there have been drugs, there's been danger of overdose. But is that is that. Uh, likelihood of overdose increasing. It seems like we hear an awful lot about fentanyl and other very, very powerful drugs today that that make overdose more likely. Is is that real or is that just a, a perception based on availability bias?
1: I do think it is absolutely real. We do see contaminants getting into the drug supply like fentanyl. Of course, there are some people who, you know, want and are seeking out fentanyl, but For the most part, you hear of so-called fentanyl poisonings, where Mm -hmm. people were not seeking out fentanyl. It just happened to be laced in whatever drug they did seek out. And I think that this is it all goes back to the iron law of prohibition, which is the stronger that we clamp down and the stronger that we enforce prohibition, the more of these contaminants are going to get into the drug supply and the stronger that they will be. the iron law of prohibition, you know, cannot be repealed. We can't get these bad actors to stop adding in these contaminants. I mean, you think of something like a football game where they don't allow in any kind of alcohol. People are mm-hmm. not going to smuggle in wine. They're going to smuggle in hard liquor. True. Because the harder it is to smuggle something in, you're going to want to have um, a stronger smaller supply that you can get in. And then people are going to add fentanyl to different things because they have this higher concentrated potency. And we're already seeing things like xylazine, which is a veterinary tranquilizer. I think the street name for it is Trank. We're already seeing that enter the drug supply. It's almost like fentanyl is, of course, fentanyl is still a real issue, but it's kind of moving off the horizon and we're going to see things like Trank. We're going to see things like nidazines start enter the drug supply, a different um, kind of opiate. So we're going to see stronger and stronger contaminants. And I think that that's why it's so important to shift toward these harm reduction approaches that will hopefully help people not overdose as frequently.
0: I'm trying to be an optimist here, Rachel, but I have to ask, does it appear there's ever going to be a time when uh, the powers that be will admit that prohibition is is a failure or at least it doesn't it doesn't do what it's advertised to do
1: i'm not much of an optimist so i I'm, I'm not too hopeful i do think that we do see more of an embrace of harm reduction but of course harm reduction is a stopgap it's not ever the end goal it's what we're using now when we're in this period of time with this incredible prohibition to kind of address the negative consequences of that. But I think, you know, it's so entrenched. We even from elementary school, you're in a dare program Mm -hmm. where law enforcement is coming in and that is absolutely the approach that you're taught about drugs. Of course, they are harmful, but that's, that's the approach where you have law enforcement coming into the classroom. So I think that it's so ingrained in people from an early age, that it's almost hard to see that that approach is not working. And it's hard to look past what you've kind of been told your whole life and then have yourself, uh, as these politicians do, accepted that and turned to that in your policy.
0: Well, it is helpful, though, when you can turn to other countries. And, and you mentioned, you know, Scotland, for instance, Glasgow officially committing to that uh um safe injection site approach as opposed to yeah we'll just you know say everybody go out there and do whatever you want um but you could also look to countries like uh, Portugal which actually did decriminalize i believe pretty much every every kind of drug and and focused more on treatment rather than than treating it as a, as a criminal problem and and that's something i mean we have a pretty good track record to look at it's been what close to 20 years since they did that
1: yeah absolutely we do have great track records in other countries i think unfortunately The optics of some politicians saying that we should be more like Europe is not what they want to say, right? Right. Um, Just culturally, that's not something that some circles like to accept. But we do have, you know, the data that has shown that this is an approach that works. And I, I mean, I think as we have more and more, it's going to be harder to continue to dismiss this. I think even some of the officials in Scotland noted that. You know, they have to work really hard to ensure that this new overdose prevention center that they will set up is successful because it will serve as another model for the rest of the world. And, of course, it's not just other countries. I mentioned in the article that there are currently two overdose prevention centers operating in New York City, although they're being threatened. uh, Local officials are threatening to take action against them, which is why we do need to remove these barriers. But in they opened in late 2021 and have already reversed over a thousand overdoses. That's a thousand people who would have been dead had these centers not been operating. So I think more U.S. states even are looking at taking these actions that are currently some seen as federally illegal. But as they have more success, you know, a thousand overdoses reversed, we're going to it's going to become even harder to deny that it's an effective solution.
0: Well, I'm going to be watching this with a lot of interest. I, I mean, uh, U.S. officials get pretty set in their ways. I think that's probably true in most areas. But if, if we can point to something that actually works, and it sounds like these OPCs in, in Scotland are, are a very viable way to do things, I can only hope that eventually we wear down the folks in power in mm-hmm. Washington, D.C., who seem very reluctant to, to give up even you know a molecule of that power.
1: Yes, absolutely completely agreed
0: so have other countries outside of the u k for instance uh, have they been looking at this as well? i can't I imagine the u s can't be the only one you know trying to find solutions to this
1: Of course, um Canada, I think, is operating the the highest number of overdose prevention centers in the entire world. There's something like a hundred and I think one hundred and forty seven sanctioned overdose prevention centers, so ones that are operating legally. Of course, I'm sure that there are more operating without that sanction. Uh, we see 38 in Canada, our, our neighbors. We see them to be incredibly effective there. And I think as, like I've said, more and more countries adopt this, we're going to become part of that, and it's going to be hopefully something that will continue to help save people's lives.
0: Oh, it's it's a... It's a tricky subject, but I think this is a much more uh, realistically or real reality-based approach. And Rachel, I appreciate you, uh, you know, sounding uh, sounding the bell on this one and at least hopefully getting people looking in the right direction. Uh, for people who wish to follow you, whether it be on social media or to, to follow your writing, uh, where can they find you?
1: Yes, they can find me um, on the Young Voices website. I think we'll link to several of these different things, and I am on Twitter. Uh, There are a million Rachel Johnsons on Twitter, but I am one of them. (laughs) A very common name, but you can find me there as well.
0: Okay, again, we are are talking with Young Voices contributor uh, Rachel Johnson. Rachel, great to have you on the show. Keep up the good work, and I hope we get to speak again in the very near future.
1: Great, thank you.
0: Welcome back. We are inviting, or welcoming, rather, Eric Suarez to our second segment today on moving forward with young voices. Eric, great to have you on the show. For people who are meeting you for the first time, take a couple of minutes here and just tell us a little bit about yourself.
2: Uh, yes, I'm a international student from Penn State. I just I graduated in uh, economics and international relations. I was born in Venezuela, but I also live in Peru, and I have been an activist and Writer about Latin America and Latin American issues for the last two years.
0: I'm always interested to talk to individuals from Venezuela, just because I believe you you have something you could teach me. There's something I could learn from from your experience. And apparently, I'm not the only one. I'm looking at an article you wrote for Nationalinterest.org. Apparently, Alexandria Ocasio Cortez needs a reality check on Venezuelan sanctions. Um, Tell me about uh, what she is saying. What uh, what is she getting wrong that uh, that she needs to to get right on?
2: Well, the main thesis of her argument is that Venezuela, uh, I'm sorry, U.S. sanctions and specifically the Trump era sanctions, the sign between parentheses by uh, Marco Rubio have been the cause of Venezuelan mass migration to the U.S. And in her view, is that because of these sanctions that have been imposed on Venezuela had led to the collapse of the country and therefore have forced thousands of people to leave Venezuela and then not uh, come through the southern border? So that's her thesis, and it couldn't be more wrong. I I, I think that if you just analyze the timelines of the Venezuelan crisis, you analyze uh, the the issue. Outside the U.S. as well, you can see that everything that she's saying right now in that thesis is just deeply ignorant or uh, ill-intentioned. So who, who exactly
0: is she pointing fingers at? Is she pointing fingers at the U.S. government and saying, yeah, you're the reason Venezuela's had troubles as opposed to their own internal leadership?
2: Correct. She's basically arguing that Venezuela collapsed and the mass migration was caused by the, the U.S. sanctions on oil and gas specifically towards Pedevesa, which is the oil and gas uh, company in Venezuela. Um, and that led to the collapse of the country, forcing thousands of people to leave, and millions of people to leave, and thousands to arrive to the U.S., and therefore creating the mass migration crisis that uh, the U.S. is facing right now. Um, more than uh, a reasonable accusation, I think that she's just trying to wash her hands after many years of uh, failed border policy Pushed by her in the previous administration. And when it was actually in, uh, in implemented, it failed dramatically. So bad that even now uh, the mayor of New York, Abraham, Abrahams, is deeply concerned already saying we cannot keep this going.
0: Wow. Well, now you, and, and of course, you being from Venezuela, you actually have some firsthand experience in, in what led. To you know the, the problems in Venezuela's e- economy can can you walk us through this? I mean you I you're a fairly young guy right now, so I'm assuming you were pretty young when a lot of this was going on. How aware were you of some of the decisions that were being made? You know, at the the national level of leadership that, that would end up affecting everybody.
2: I think that it, in my case is very very interesting because for me it's it has been like a retroactive learning of things that I went through. So I remember experiencing the 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 society and how society was changing, but I didn't understand it. And then when i I grew up and I learned more about uh, and I started studying more, I looked back and I realized, okay, now I understand why things went the way they they went they through and why society and and my surroundings were reacting that way. So it all starts when uh, um, the socialist policies started by Hugo Chavez uh, started affecting the country in the sense that it made the country heavily dependent. On you on oil and gas, and then a lot of social programs pushed by socialist policies, dependent on were dependent on oil and gas. It came to a point where more than ninety percent of the of the Venezuelan economy was dependent on oil and gas. And under this, um, let's say, a scenario, what ended up happening is that while Chavez was in power, the prices of oil and gas were very high. It was a bonanza of money and revenue coming in. There was a lot of corruption, but the amount of revenue that was entering the country was so good was good enough that the politicians and and could like get the get money for themselves, but still fund very uh, big social programs. And then the crisis starts after uh, the oil prices go down dramatically, and a lot of these social programs end up. Uh, forgotten and there's no money to fund many things uh, and other socialist policies starts happening. And what ended up happening is that the country that was so dependent on oil and gas and their revenue just couldn't fund any of the programs that made anymore. And thousands of people were depending on this, on these programs. Uh, And the end of the day, you know, if you add that to the political, Situation and and many protests and the, and the taking you know taking of democracy, especially after Maduro, after Maduro took power, you have a country where uh, there's thousands of people starving. You can see pictures of people that, down in 2013 just eating food from the trash and and finding anything to eat on the streets. It was very apocalyptic, I would even say. Um, but that that's what led. To the first wave of migration if you can call it that and well right after that many other things that have to do more more politically people wanting a change of course there have been protests in 2013 14 17 and 19 of very hopeful people that they thought we can create this change of regime we believe in the opposition that can make this change and the real reason people started leaving Venezuela was because that hope was lost already in 2020. Um, And that's when the big mass migration happens from 2016 to 2020. uh, It was already a big problem in the regional.
0: Wow. Well, let's, let's contrast AOC's advocacy for uh, removing sanctions with a proposal from representative Maria Elvira Salazar from Florida. You you would say that AOC's proposals don't make a lot of sense, but actually Representative Salazar's do make some sense.
2: Yes, and I think um, Representative Salazar's policies reflect way more understanding of the Venezuelan crisis, not only abroad, but also inside the U.S. So one of my, uh, let's say the ones that I like the most was the Venezuelan Adjustment Act, which is this proposal to give Venezuelan people um, a path to uh, residency and citizenship. Under the claim that because of the of the crisis and the, and, the, and the damage of the home country, most of these people are not going to come back. And Venezuela is not going to be solved as an issue and as a country that embraces democracy and, and democratic values for a long time it doesn't make sense to have a lot of Venezuelan population here uh, under a limbo status, which is the TPS um, for longer. And that it it will be an actual net positive to, to welcome these people. Um, I think that one is a very important policy that needs to be made, especially to change the current situation with the TPS for, I want to explain what TPS is, it's temporary protection status is mm-hmm. an special status given to certain individuals from certain countries that would um, pro- protect them from being deported in case uh, due for certain uh, let's say crisis that their countries are facing. So Venezuelans have this special um, status, and the problem with it is that it is not permanent. It is any precedent or uh, after the time is due can just not continue it, and then you will have a crisis of many thousands of Venezuelans staying in the country with no papers, with no permission to work, and that will create a bigger crisis already than the one that we have right now.
0: All right, again, we are talking with Eric Suarez. He is an international relations graduate from Penn State University, focusing on Latin American politics. He's also a contributor for Young Voices. And uh, Eric, for people who wish to follow your work or would like to follow you on social media, where can they find you?
2: Yeah, my uh, my handle for both Twitter or X, whatever you want to call it, and Instagram is at Eric Suarez M. Okay, very good, Eric.
0: Great to uh, visit with you. Let's talk again soon. See you soon. Welcome back. This is our third segment today of uh, Moving Forward with Young Voices. Hey, happy to welcome a a new contributor. Her name is Caroline Welton. And Caroline, before we dive into your excellent article, let's take a moment to get to know you a little bit better. Tell us about yourself and tell us about the hats that you wear.
3: Yeah. So thanks so much for having me on, Brian. Um, My name is Caroline. I do policy research based out of Austin, Texas, enjoying a little bit of cold weather down here and always enjoying some good political theory.
0: I'm looking at an article you wrote for TexasPolicy.com about how Austin taxpayer money is being used to hire lobbyists who support more government. And and on the first, first of all, I got to tell you, I'm relieved to hear that uh, where I live in Idaho is not the only place experiencing this. Apparently this is going on other places, but how do mm-hmm. you deal with people who want to grow government and are willing to use taxpayer money to, to make it happen?
3: well brian that's a great question as as you probably know city governments spend way too much money Um, We often will look at how much more the city budgets grow than what they really need, even based on reasonable inflation. Texas is growing a lot, so we can look at population plus inflation, which is a pretty good conservative budget level. Um, And based off this metric, the conservative budget level for Austin would have been 3.41%. Austin's growing to 4.62%. And the, they are using taxpayer-funded lobbyists to lobby for more money to keep growing this budget.
0: Interesting. Now let's put this in perspective as far as how big of a city is pop, population-wise is Austin.
3: Austin's got about three million. I want to say I am not wow. the expert on that, but it is okay. growing. Big tech sector, always happy for new friends, but I want to make sure that we're remembering the proper ends of the city's jurisdiction.
0: Oh, here, here, and and and. Can you give me just kind of a ballpark idea? When you talk about their budget is going up by, you know, 3%, 4%, it's continually going up. How big of a budget are we talking? I assume that uh, for a city that size, you're probably in billion-dollar territory.
3: I don't know that number off the top of my head, but you are correct that it is it is in the billions. And you know, Brian, the crazy thing about that budget is that it's being spent on things that Austin taxpayers don't want their money going toward. Austin is not funding their law enforcement. They're not funding... Um, emergency services. They're not funding the proper ends of city governments. Instead, they're funding things like climate change. They are funding increasing civil regulations. They are funding things that do not reflect the interests and needs of their constituents.
0: Wow. And that's, I mean, you have you've nailed it. This is a very big concern. Um, okay, here's my basic civics lesson for everybody in a th- on a thumbnail <laughs> sketch, and that is government exists to protect your rights. In fact, your rights are what limit government's power over you. So when you have people using taxpayer dollars to fund the growth of government for the sake not of uh, protecting your rights, but of increasing your obligations to government, you can see why that would would be a bit of a problem, at least for people who appreciate limited government and more personal freedom and responsibility.
3: That's right. And Brian, you know, the numbers back us up on this. Um, The Texas Public Policy Foundation did a poll February of this year where we asked people Um, If they supported taxpayer money going to support lobbyists and nine, nearly nine in 10 um, people polled. um, These were likely voters. They oppose the use of taxpayer funded uh, money to lobby the government. So when you hear arguments from cities saying that they are the ones who more who are closer to Texans' hearts, who have more knowledge of their sympathies of their interests. This is not true. They are not lobbying for the expressed desires of Texans,
0: yeah, in fact, uh, you know, as you point out in your article, it sounds like a lot of times the lobbyists are lobbying for things that the the citizenry itself really isn't doesn't want, and they're not ready to accept. But, hey, we're showing up with money and, you know, trying to entice lawmaking bodies or at least regulatory bodies to to do our bidding. Who are the lobbyists or at least what what are some of what's the makeup of some of these special interest groups that, that are using these taxpayer dollars?
3: Well, you know, Brian, I'm not here to call anyone out by name. Um, but a lot of what we do see a lot of the time is that cities um, will have their government affairs relations, mm-hmm. which there is a proper end for for conveying information. Um, but they often will also extend to lobbying. You'll see um, some associations that tend to lobby for larger government, for more spending, for more of a liberal agenda. Um, and it's through these types of groups that you generally see opposition to bills that have very popular support.
0: Yeah, as you point out in your article, um, it's a it's a big problem when you're using taxpayer money to hire lobbyists. Who are there to advocate for the system as opposed for the, the the people themselves, and and I guess I don't know maybe people forget they blur that line. Well, you know we are the government. No, you're not. <laughs> Just don't think
3: that I was. I'm sorry. Go ahead.
0: Don't pay a ticket, and you'll learn very quickly. No, you're not the government. Oh well, I you know I excused myself. No, you didn't.
3: <laughs> for sure, something I always like to remind people of is that city governments exist for a pretty limited scope of things. You want your city to be providing law enforcement you want them to be providing emergency services you want them to be maintaining roads um cities are not even providing these functions um and in fact the cities really are creatures of the state you know texas created the cities we have our local government code to regulate these cities um and if if the cities are trying to you know act in these areas where they don't actually have jurisdiction that is not serving the interest of the people
0: very true and and you can correct me if I'm wrong on this after all. I don't live in Texas, but I, I know that Austin kind of has a reputation of being a little more progressive than other areas of Texas. W- would you say it's it's probably the bluest part of an otherwise pretty red state?
3: That would be an accurate statement. Um, Austin is definitely faster growing and we see more government activism from them than some other cities, probably because it's the capital, also, which is reasonable enough, but we do want to make sure that we're serving Austinites. You know, we have a homeless problem, for instance. I mean, that would be a great place where we could actually see some legitimate government action instead of, um, allocations for solving climate change, for instance.
0: Oh yeah. Well, and it, it's happening everywhere. And and in fact, in, in some That's places right. I'm seeing where, you know, the kids are the ones being taught this at school. So they come home. Well, you know, climate change really is the biggest thing that, uh, that we have to deal with. And now mom and dad are getting pressure from the politicians as well as their kids. It, you mentioned there was one, I believe there was one politician or one council member in Austin, Mackenzie Kelly, who was the only member who voted against the agenda saying, as a matter of principle, I'm against the practice of taxpayer funded lobbying are any of the other city council members feeling pressure for this or do their constituencies tend to go along with it?
3: You know, um, the council member you noted as kind of the one conservative holdout on Austin city council. Most of Austin does vote pretty blue. So you're not going to see much pushback. Um, you know.
0: Okay. It's a, it's a hard battle. It's gotta be lonely. <laughs> I mean, um, It does
3: mean that there's a lot of good work to be done though. Much room for improvement.
0: Right, right. And I, I appreciate the optimistic approach that you're taking here. Um, you would think at some point, though, the taxpayers would start to get the message, you know, that, hey, we need more money. And, and the taxpayers are like, really, didn't you just ask me for more just a short time? And by the way, I don't agree with all the things that it's funding, but I don't know, maybe people are just terribly passive right now.
3: No, and I think this comes back to the core issue we're talking about, which is these taxpayer-funded lobbyists. Like I said, I mean, nearly 90% of Texans don't support this practice, and yet these lobbyists are going out um, and, and advocating for their own existence to continue. Even if the taxpayers vote against this, these lobbyists, you know, have an ear to the legislators.
0: Wow. Well, it'll be very curious. Now you've got this on my radar screen. I'm going to have to start paying attention, and, and hopefully, in the the not so distant future, you and I will have a chance to talk again, and maybe we can uh, recount some of the successes <laughs> in reigning in, you know, the, the hiring of uh, of lobbyists, you know, for the city using taxpayer funds. That seems like such a clear ethical breach, but apparently, there's there's some gray area or something where where it's 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 gray enough that people can get away with it.
3: You know, back in the 80s, we banned lobbyists for agencies in Texas. Next step is to ban lobbyists um, for cities in Texas. It's just one step at a time, right? Keep fighting the good fight.
0: But it's but it's not every city in Texas that's doing that, right? I mean, I, I assume they all probably have lobbyists of some sort, but um, not every city's lobbying like Austin is, correct?
3: You see a mix. It is, as you suspect, the larger cities. But some of the associations, um, for instance, TML, TML, um, Will lobby on behalf of purportedly on behalf of the smaller cities as well. Okay.
0: Well, I I wish you the best, and I appreciate your enthusiasm. Really, you've got you've got a lot of energy, and clearly you love Texas, which is good. That's right. Um. So again, we're talking with Caroline Welton, uh, Caroline. For people who want to follow you, either on social media or would like to follow your writing, what's the best way for them to find you?
3: Yeah, go look me up on Twitter at c welton seventy six.
0: See Welton seventy six, okay, and uh, and maybe keep a close uh, ear to the ground on on the goings on in in Austin. Is is it That's right? You know, we 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 talk about as goes California, so goes the nation. Does does Texas kind of feel like there's a similar corollary with as goes Austin, so goes Texas? Do do things tend to to flow outward from there?
3: Um, in a good way. Insofar as Austin is the capital, you know, we want to see Texas being a bold conservative leader that the rest of the country can look to.
0: All right. Very good. Again, we're talking with Carolyn Welton. Carolyn, thank you. Have a wonderful day.
3: Thanks so much for having me, Brian.
0: Welcome back to Moving Forward with Young Voices. This is our fourth and final segment. We'd like to welcome Alexander Petropoulos uh, to the show. And Alexander, uh, for those who are getting acquainted with you for the very first time, take a moment here. Tell us about who you are and what you do.
4: So I'm a freelance opinion writer. I have hot takes and I put them out on the internet in newspapers, online. Um, and then on top of that, I also do freelance AI policy research. And depending on the time of year, I'll usually based out of Athens, Greece or London, UK. Okay
0: you're you're a busy guy and you do a lot of traveling and a lot of writing but I I'm very curious about uh, this article that you've written for um cityam.com without china on site sunak's global ai safety summit will be pointless now i'm hearing a lot about ai these days but i have to admit that uh, rishi sunak who i believe is he the is he the uh, is he the prime minister or is he the mayor of, of
4: yep. london he's the pri- he's the prime minister of the uk okay he's the, oh, he's the
0: Commander UK's in prime- chief. And he's hosting an AI summit in London. Tell me what's what's the purpose behind this this summit? What are the uh, the nations of the world trying to sort out regarding artificial intelligence?
4: Yeah, so I mean, anyone and your grand will have seen AI. Will have seen ChatGPT, and I think when the world leaders saw ChatGPT and what can do in March, it sort of accelerated a timeline that we have been talking about for a while, which is. This could get dangerous one day, and if it does, we're not prepared for that. So that's what this summit is all about. It's essentially saying, look, the technology right now isn't dangerous, but is close to being dangerous. And we're nowhere near prepared in sort of having a framework, having a set of regulations, having a plan of what to do about it to make it sure that it doesn't get to that state. And so that's what this summit is all about. It's all about cooperation, getting people all together so we can agree and essentially start having those conversations. So can I ask, what
0: is it that is that uh, raises the possibility of it becoming dangerous? I mean, I'm just learning about AI. I'm just starting to get my mind around it. But uh, to this point, it's been pretty good. It's been very interesting. What lies around the corner that, that could make this you know, less than helpful?
4: So I think in essence, it's what makes it good that is also what could make it harmful, which is that it's incredibly useful and is getting smarter and smarter. And so there are two sort of use cases that I'd sort of point out to say, these are possible like danger uh, scenarios. One of those is sort of pandemics. Um, If AI models get smart enough, they could essentially teach rogue actors, rogue states, even individuals who'd want to do harm, how to essentially engineer by themselves from their own homes, pandemics and viruses of the scale of COVID or even worse. And I mean, I, I think that's pretty clear why that'd be quite a threatening risk. Another example could also be um AI models could get smart enough such that they are essentially able to enable you to hack into sophisticated and secure systems and do all sorts of damage with that. And other systems aren't there right now. But the point is that we've seen how smart and how much smarter these systems have gotten over the past few months. And the real key, is we're chucking in so much investment into these labs. Billions and billions of dollars going into these AI labs that's just gonna make these models get smarter and smarter. And to be honest, the rate of improvement is almost accelerating. And so this summit is all about being prepared for where we're going.
0: Isn't that interesting? I mean, look, I, I just was made aware of this in the last couple of weeks, but um, as I mentioned, I've been, I've been learning a little bit about using AI um, to to generate content and just learning how to pose a proper query to it and so forth, but uh, Alexander, I've been shocked at how within the space of a couple of weeks, what was you know the premier program to use, suddenly is not. That's how quickly things are advancing. I mean, it's not a matter of well, and then a couple of years later, somebody came up with a better version of it. No, it's like in days or sometimes weeks, and it's be it's because 100%. it's it's learning.
4: Yeah, and and it's because it's learning. It's because you know, it's, you just got to follow the money and there's a lot of money to be made out of AI, right? It's an incredibly valuable tool as I'm sure everyone realizes. And so because of that, where investors see money, they are investing and really accelerating the time frame. And where this really gets at is that these sort of issues that we're talking about, right? Like biosecurity pandemics or cyber attacks, they're not something that you can sort of deal with your own country and make sure your own country is secure and be safe. It's really a, a global issue because unless we get this right everywhere, we're never going to be safe.
0: Wow. I can see the the dilemma here though. I mean, it's, it's where this is a self-learning type of, uh, of intelligence. Um, I can see where that line could, could really be, be very, uh, it could, it could be very hard to see as far as, well, when do we cross that threshold? And yet, uh, you know, it's, it sounds like there, there's a race of sorts. Maybe I'm wrong in using that word, but, but is it safe to say China and the U.S. both are doing their best to develop AI, you know, for their own advantages?
4: I think that's a really accurate framing. And not just China and the U.S., but even companies within the U.S. are racing between each other. And so that really poses big questions of if we're racing, are we sort of cutting corners on safety? And are we perhaps pushing the capabilities, pushing the abilities of these models? faster than we're pushing our ability to control them and to and, and keep things safe. And, you know, when it comes to China, we've done the best that we can to rein them in. Um, the Biden administration just last week put in another range of export controls, sort of tightened them up to stop chips going to China. But even within that, there is chip smuggling happening. So these really powerful AI chips that you need to train these really sophisticated models are being smuggled out of the West into China. And the rate of this smuggling is probably only going to increase. I mean, That's like, if you told me a year ago that people would be smuggling tiny chips, right? I'd (laughs) I'd sound a bit crazy. Right. And I'd say, I'd say like the national security council was concerned about the smuggling of tiny chips into China. Right. 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 But that's where we're at.
0: Well, and you, you point out in uh, your article that, uh, the, the advances are taking place fast enough that, that it takes less of these very highly advanced computer chips, these faster computer chips than it did, you know, even a short time ago. So you point out, like, in, in, at that pace in three years, training a model that would have previously taken a thousand state-of-the-art chips would only take 64.
4: That's yeah, so, pretty impressive. Yeah, so, so this is exponential growth. I mean, like, we, <laughs> I used to be afraid of saying that, but after COVID, I think everyone understands a lot better exponential growth um but yeah we're essentially doubling 2.5 times in how efficient we are with these chips every year through the algorithms and then also we're making these chips denser we're making them more powerful we're making them we're constructing them more efficiently and then we're also getting access to larger quantities of data and so you have all three of these multipliers that you then stack together and it creates a quite what can look sometimes scary rate of progress Um, But what's important is that I am very optimistic about the state of governance, about the state of AI policy, because look at all these countries coming together for a summit. Look at all these countries. If you told me a year ago that you'd have the White House putting out executive orders on AI policy, and you'd have Kamala Harris coming to the UK along with world leaders around the world to discuss and decide how we're going to deal with this, I'd have told you that's baloney, right? Right. But, but it's uh, happened. In fact, it, wasn't happened. it just this
0: last week that uh, just, just recently the Biden administration yeah. issued those executive orders?
4: Yeah, exactly. And and these executive orders covering this wide range of risks, covering these sort of scary risks of, you know, buyer risk and potentially hacking and like all the way up to the existential scale and also putting, putting in place the resources we need to tackle even more moderate risks like bias and like misinformation. The really important things that are happening is that there's recognition from our politicians this is a problem that we need to tackle. There's consensus, and thankfully, this isn't becoming a politicized issue. And also money is being put into the right place, where it was previously just money being thrown at making things smarter. Now we're seeing money being thrown at the research community to make it safer. And that's something I think that everyone can really get behind.
0: Alexander, we've got about one minute left here, but I have to ask you, given how AI learns and, and develops, is is it wishful thinking to think that there are certain types of uh, certain subjects that can be controlled or kept from it or, or made off limits?
4: I think that, so to answer your question, it depends how you train it. So if that information is in the training data, then no matter how hard you try there's no way you can really finesse and fine tune and squeeze the final model to suppress that. It's quite vulnerable to being adjusted and tweaked and tuned. So it really comes down to making sure we're training things on the right data to make sure we're training things securely from the beginning. Now I'm confident that we will be able to come up with solutions and tools that can help us control the outputs of these models, but it's not just as simple as putting a filter on it. And it's not just as simple as just saying, please don't output this because you can just flip that script and say, please do output it. It's quite a technically challenging problem, but we're putting a lot of money into solving it and all the eyes are in the right place. All right. Again,
0: we are talking with Alex Petropoulos. He is a contributor to young voices and Alex, for the sake of those who would like to follow your writing or otherwise contact you or find you on um, social media, how could they do that?
4: I'm uh, at Alex T pet, Alex, T-P-E-T on Twitter mainly find all my hot takes
0: all right Alex thanks so much I hope we talk again soon
4: thank you it was a blast